Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, we are joined by Katherine Yoder, Executive Director of the Adult Advocacy Centers. Katherine, thank you for joining us. Hi, Stacy. Thank you for having me. Of course. And Scott's here with us too today. Hey, Scott. Hey, Stace. Catherine, great to have you. So, Catherine, if you could start by letting our listeners know a little bit about you, that would be wonderful so they can know you as well as Scott and I do. Oh, um, so my name is Catherine Yoder. I'm the executive director, as Stacy said, of the Adult Advocacy Center. I've been doing forensic interviewing for many, many years and investigations against crimes against people with disabilities. Um, we worked with Model Consulting to come up with forensic interview protocols, and I myself have a disability, I have autism, and so um, I really appreciate being told to engage in small talk, because this is literally my happy place. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we appreciate you taking the time, Catherine, and um, it's been such a joy to to partner with you to make sure that people, regardless of age or ability, have access to this thing we call a forensic interview. So it's been a a fun partnership, and we've enjoyed uh, getting to know you and your team and working together to bring this content to as many people as we possibly can. Likewise, Stacey, likewise. Um, So we wanted to bring you on, Catherine, today to just sort of see you know, how everything's been going, what's been going on, and if there's anything that you're noticing in the field as any emerging issues or trends that are going on that you think our listeners could learn about from you and your experience and your expertise. Well, thank you, Stacey. The one thing we do have going on um, is on the 27th, we're doing a webinar. um, We're releasing a white paper about forensic nurse examiners who sometimes have been referred to as sane nurses, um, but that's sexual assault uh, nurse examiner. Um, and we really are moving away from that. I know Stacy and Scott talk about this in their training, um, just because if you talk to someone who's a concrete thinker or who has minimal health background, there's a good chance they're gonna go chickity boom if you say here comes a sane nurse. So we're sticking with the real term forensic nurse examiner, which is also a better, uh, provides better clarification on what the role actually encompasses. But we're uh, stating that that actually can fit the criteria of an ADA accommodation for forensic nurse examiners who specialize in disabilities, specifically the communication piece. Um, So that is actually going to be huge. We've already been able to kind of make that with forensic interviewing um, being a ADA accommodation. Um, for cases that meet that criteria. And so this will also be something that will be an excellent tool for people to potentially be able to request. Um, For emerging trends, um, that's uh, a topic I really like talking about because um, if we're able to identify the trends, maybe we can get information out um, and and potentially kind of help or at least support other people who are having these kind of cases. So one of the cases that we've seen that's that's um, kind of becoming a trend is uh, it's really people who have 
backgrounds in mental health. In this one particular case, it involves someone who had self-injurious behavior, um, and they're actually being recruited online under the guise of um, therapy. So they're being contacted by individuals that say that they're mental health professionals and that they are engaging in these new types of therapy. Um, and so essentially what they're doing is drafting up contracts for people to sign. And then those people come and stay at that person's house and literally it becomes a human trafficking case. Um, and so what ends up happening is that it's kind of described uh, to the the potential victim that, you know, this is going to be therapeutic in the case of the self-injurious behavior. It was one of those situations where we're going to take the power away from you because you're the person who is injuring yourself and we're going to injure you from a therapeutic standpoint um, to, you know, take away that power, which obviously there's no research or, or any kind of qualified medical professional would ever support that. But because they're doing it under this mental health therapy guise, uh, it, it's actually becoming a little bit quite effective. And so um, what ends up happening is when the people, when the individuals arrive, they end up being beaten and raped and human trafficked and being made to work and, and labor trafficking too. And it's a huge mess. Um, but in this particular case, we were you know, talking to law enforcement and informed that this is actually a trend that they're seeing on the dark web. The perpetrators essentially are kind of sharing tips and getting legal advice and creating these kind of documentation um, in order to make sure that when these cases actually come out, it, there's more of a gray area. It makes it harder for them to prosecute. Um, Scott, did you have, have you guys seen anything like this? We haven't seen something like that. And as you're describing it, I'm thinking, you know, so many different things I shared. I think you may be familiar with the case that I had that was similar in the sense that they were abusing this individual under the guise of of a treatment approach. Um, but nothing, nothing quite like that. Um, it's it's amazing the depths at which people will go. And that added layer of that contract is really interesting. And and, uh, you know, one of the one of the counters to some of this maybe again as this is new um would be in one of the ways that i helped try to counter the treatment approach aspect of this physical abuse that was going on was really testifying at trial as to the yeah no that's not a treatment approach that's known even aversive techniques uh at the judge rottenberg center that were used in massachusetts um go not even close to that and that those are all last resort um I'm actually probably heading to too far down a path of without explaining to our listeners what any of that is. But basically, I think the counter would be mental health professionals and others pushing back on. It's not an accepted um, approach. And in fact, the people who are engaging in that behavior fit the definition of sadist, if you will. And it, they also remind me in, in the child world, um, if we think about um, child molesters, a behavioral analysis, Kenneth Lanning's work talks about sadist child molesters that derive mm -hmm. pleasure from the pain of others. It's it, it really just takes this to a whole nother level. So I haven't seen anything, Stace, I, I don't think we've anybody in our firm has seen anything like this. 
well, and I'm saying no, but not yet, right? That doesn't mean, just because it hasn't come to us doesn't mean it's not happening or or that it won't. Um, but Catherine, I'm really thinking when you're talking about that case in particular about the vulnerabilities, right, of people looking for help and some of the lack of resources that we see in every state, something that we hear all across the country when we're training and just how someone, you know, is going to get that, oh, I'm finally going to get maybe some help or this person says that they can help me. And then this is the help that they get. And then the ramifications of, do they ever ask for help again? You know, if, if they find themselves out of this situation at some point, like, what are they going to, how yeah. are they ever going to ask for help again? And my, I don't think I would. So if they're able to get out of the situation, right. because a lot of them end up, you know, stuck in that, in, in that setting. But we do see correlation between that and child residential facilities. Um, and I think a big piece of that too, is that we have a large population that essentially gets placed in institutional settings. And we don't really talk enough about how those institutional settings really affect people's mentality and their development and those kind of things. And what it really does is kind of create this culture of acceptance and not really questioning your own um, mental health uh, plan. You know, it, because a lot of, when it comes to therapy, a lot of times it's all done for you. Um, you just show up and you talk a lot of times, but the big piece of it too, is that, you know, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be in therapy that, that, someone is taking something from you and using it to benefit themselves. So, you know, that's one way that you can tell that it's a problem. Um, and the other thing, I think it really identifies this huge need of mental health resources that there just aren't enough all over. And it really comes down to the problem that we've been all working towards forever. And that's stigmatizing you know, people really feel like, look, there's something wrong with me. And they're willing to engage in these kind of really, you know, now, to be honest, uh, in this particular case, they didn't know what they were getting into until sure, they were sure. there. But it does cause a lot of people to engage in techniques that they wouldn't necessarily do. And historically, that's been huge with the disability community with lobotomies. And so people, you know, that's the case with uh, Rose K Kennedy is that, you know, they desperately wanted her to be normal. So, you know, at that point it was, let's do the lobotomy. Well, that did not work because <laughs> you just should not be hammering something into somebody's brain. But, you know, that that's really what it all kind of comes down to a lot of times is this whole othering. Yeah, and so if somebody, if any of our listeners are, you, you know, this resonates with them or like, oh my gosh, I heard of something similar, we're, where do we, and we didn't script exactly how we we're going to say this at all, but like, where, what do we recommend that they do? Like where, where to search, like who to go to? Yeah. I, mean, I think certainly that can reach out to you or us or, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I think a big thing is people don't know who to reach out to. Um, and so I think reaching out to, you know, either model consulting or, uh, collaborative, uh, or adult advocacy center, like that would be a good place to start. The thing is a lot of times when people reach out to law enforcement, um, sometimes there may be additional advocacy that's needed because especially if someone signed a document and sometimes it's hard for uh, people when they first come into a situation, they try to take it all in. Um, and if someone isn't looking at it from a disability lens, 
they might have a very altered view of the situation. So it it is helpful to kind of call in um, someone to kind of assist. But, you know, if you think that's happening, you can also call law enforcement. They're willing to do um, a, a wellness check to make sure someone's okay. But yeah. Yeah. Again, we have to be careful with that because here in the disability community, 50% of all law enforcement shootings that end in death involve someone with a disability. Um, so, you know, th this kind of just becomes another circular issue that that we're seeing here in the disability community. Yeah. And certainly just it goes without saying, if uh, you come across something like this and it's an emergency situation, call 911. You certainly can reach out to us in, right. in a non-acute uh, yeah. Sonny, I, you know, I just want to throw that out there. You know, I'm sure everybody knows that I'm not trying to be condescending in any way, but sometimes these things are, you know, really powerful and right. you know, we reach out when we can, but yeah, certainly in that instance, um, I want to change the subject a little bit, but I'm going to take my cue from Catherine or Stacy. If y'all have anything else you wanted to talk about on this. Well, topic. I just wanted to add one more thing. And I, it made me think of it when Catherine mentioned getting an outside perspective, because we offer that all the time in trainings. When we meet people like don't hesitate, please to reach out. We'd be happy to just bounce ideas. Maybe you've thought of everything that we've thought of too, but at least let's talk about it. And I was at a training a couple of weeks ago and someone walked up to me and they were like, Hey, we've got this case that's going on right now. Can we talk about it? And they talked about the individual being an ASL user. And I was like, okay. I said, and are they hearing? And they went, I don't know. And, you know, just again, that belief that all people who use ASL can't hear or are deaf. And she was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I never thought to ask that question. And it's, you know, to me, I was just like, okay, well, ask that question. And then we talked about the other, you know, dynamics of the case as well. But just sometimes just bouncing something off somebody to get a question like that, you know, they'll probably ask it of every other person, you know, moving forward after hearing that from me. But that was that was my first question. Yeah, because they were yeah. asking about interpreters and accommodations, and they, they were doing all the right things, 100% doing all the right things. But I just asked the question, they're like, Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I didn't think to ask yeah. that. So that's where I think that just bouncing an idea off somebody can sometimes give you additional information that could be really helpful in your interview or your investigation. Yeah, and that re reminds me, I got a call once from a, we did a courtesy interview for a child advocacy center. And they were saying that, you know, they had this, uh, this survivor who was uh, had multiple disabilities, then you know that they could not communicate with her, and that they needed us to help with the forensic interview. And of course, you know, we said we would. When I got some additional information, and the disability, the only disability listed was Down syndrome, and I said, you know, you said there was some sort of communication issue. I said maybe that piece didn't make it on the paper. She's like, she has Down syndrome. I said, oh, okay. So we go and do the interview and what ends up happening is the child, the, 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 the interviewer came in and was like, hi, my name is, and the child's like, that person was stupid as hell. I'm not talking to her. You know, she just didn't like, her, you know, and it's uh -huh. that. That's one of the things, unfortunately, that people just never take into account initially when somebody's not communicating, that it may not have anything to do with their disability. They might not like your ass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Communication. I've been fired out of an interview before, 100%. <laughs> I think they were like, can I talk to the other interviewer, please? And called them my name. And I was like, yep, you sure can. <laughs> so sometimes people just don't jive. And that's right. okay. That's right. why communication is always thought of as it's a two way street. Right. Yes. And I think that language of like, well, I'm not able to communicate with them or we're not able to communicate. 
does give credit to the fact that communication is is both ways and um yeah we've we've been on i think all of us have been on both sides of that where yeah, yes people want to talk to Absolutely. us and sometimes you don't want to talk to us but, but I'm sure like, yeah because i've had people tell me stuff they didn't talk to anybody else right it's uh, so like they i we drive that's great but it's good when at least um places are getting those kind of cases and they're not sure with what to do instead of just saying well we're not going to do the interview at least they're reaching out and stuff like that. And it's one of those things where the more you work with the disability community, the more comfortable you're going to become because it's very nuanced and there's a lot of jargon and, and, you know, a lot of different systems within itself and a lot of history. And so sometimes, you know, it can seem pretty intimidating, but that case was really, really funny because the kid was just like, I don't like her ass. I was like, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. And no communication issues here. Nope. You can talk perfectly fine. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. All right, Scott. Now you can change the subject. Go ahead. We. Uh... Yeah, I was gonna anyway. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I. Uh, so one of the things about current topics, and we have a little bit more time here. And Catherine, uh, I know you and I have spoke about this a little bit, but I think our listeners, and we have listeners from like multiple countries. Like, I don't know. Our, our producer will have to tell me how many, but I think. 15 different countries, which is really cool. Um, she's whispering in the background. That's not to be her, but she's amazing. Maddie's great. So uh, this benefits trafficking. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's, it, we talked about it a little bit at the National Adult Protective Services Association Conference, and more and more people are aware of this. Uh, we're really just starting to understand it a little bit better. And by we, I mean, certainly, I think the field in general, but others are a little bit more ahead in, in this. And I think you're, you're you're a little bit more ahead in in being exposed to some of this and thinking about it. So let's talk about it. So benefits trafficking um, is something that really affects our population more than others because you have a really, really high percentage um, of people with disabilities who are on some kind of benefits. And when we're talking about benefits trafficking, that can even include not just like SSDI checks, but also like food stamps and Section 8 and those kind of things. So any kind of benefits. So what is, yeah, what is the, what's benefits trafficking to our folks who are hearing this term for the first time? So essentially it's uh, pretty much confining that person to utilize their benefits. So a lot of times we're getting cases where Usually, like someone is is literally locked in a basement or in an attic, um, and they're just kept there. They're pretty. It, it's like a a holding cell or or a prison. That's where they live, and the rest of the household uses the funds or whatever the benefits are to live off of this person. Um, and usually, so far, a hundred percent of the time, if benefits trafficking is is exists, there's going to be another element, whether it's physical abuse, definitely neglect will be there. Um, but a lot of times we also see like medical um, neglect specifically with that. So benefits trafficking right now, there's only one state that has a law in the books about it. Um, and it was Georgia. Yeah. yeah. So yay, Georgia. Um, but yeah, talk it's, to some of those folks at the, at the conference. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we've taken a look at it. We've come up with some edits and things to it. Um, we were looking at maybe doing some work on it at a state level, but it probably makes more sense just to do it at a federal level because it's in every single state. Um, so well, it's federal benefits too. It's not just state correct. benefits. Though. Correct. 
Correct. So um, it, it's something that I think what we kind of refer to as a low hanging fruit. I don't see a lot of people opposing uh, benefits trafficking, you know, saying that they don't want any kind of statute or law in place to curb that. Um, so I think that that's something that can be very, very useful. Um, but again, the big problem is accurate data and reporting. Another big issue with benefits trafficking is, uh, for example, all of the statistics that are kept for victims of crime through the Department of Justice, which they do a great job every year, they update them and everything, none of them contain, they don't collect any data on abuse of people in facilities, uh, which is appalling because they're literally erasing an entire um, piece of our community. And the rate of abuse historically is elevated, usually in group settings a lot of times. Um, and so- do states have that data in your, in your state? Do they keep that data? Not on disability. They so they're gonna have they're going to have data like as far as incident reports and those kind of things. The problem though is every system functions differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where even the definitions can be different. You know, what is a restraint in one system defined is defined totally different in another system. So that's the problem that too. It's yeah, it's, it's yeah. not only yeah. statute based in some jurisdictions and states. It's also going to be by administrative rule. Uh, right. State oversight agencies have different different rules. So that's a really good point. So national data, there'd be too much noise in it anyways to get. Right. Right. Really well, and, and that's the big issue is all the data right now that surrounds crime victims with disabilities. We all know it's not accurate right. because there hasn't been, you know, a real way to set up, you know, to make sure that we're getting the accurate data because so much of it is unreported. Um, but benefit even the reported, like getting the get people being able to identify, uh, capture correctly. Sorry, Catherine, keep going. Yes. Yeah, no, 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 but no, you're, you go. <laughs> well, that's what I was saying. I was, I was just really adding on. I was all excited. So I cut you off. Like we invited you to speak and now I'm trying to talk. Right. Oh, yeah, that, I, don't that cut, I don't cut anybody off, <laughs> but it's a great conversation. So, yeah, I was just saying like, I, I know we, some of these issues on talking about the UCR universal crime report, like. Being able to put, even if you put something on there for disability, and it may be on there now, I don't know, but how are people capturing it correctly? And if somebody's just writing DD, right, you know, developmental disability, well, great, that's a nice broad diagnostic category. Uh, you know, no offense to, to folks doing it because mm -hmm. some people aren't trained to do it or or wouldn't know. So, yeah, there's all sorts of issues. There's just got to be a better way. I wonder if there's anybody, anybody in academia that's thinking about this. I'm no longer in academia, so I don't have the luxury of thinking think about it as much. What we really need is for somebody to essentially, and this shouldn't be overly difficult, come up with the percentage of people with disabilities and come up with the amount of funds that are currently being given to organizations to combat that and see what the discrepancy is. Because that's the other piece too, is that the work that's being around that's being done around crime victims with disabilities, there isn't a lot of funding. And it's kind of appalling when you look at the sheer numbers of, vic of the victimization rate, excuse me, and then the amount that's being um, allocated to kind of do that work. It's, it's very, um, what's, it's very disheartening. Um, disability is a culture and that's something that I think a lot of people often forget. 
Um, and so when you're dealing with cultural populations, it's one of those things where you also have to make sure representation is there. And that has not been an area that disability has been strong in the fields of criminal justice and victim services and all of that. No one's actually ever really imagined people with disabilities working in these areas. And, you know, kind of with what Stacy, her example with the ASL, you know, we um, we worked, you know, Model and adult advocacy centers, you know, we have the we have a, a, a ASL forensic interviewer through AAC whose first language is ASL. And so she can essentially do forensic interviews in her own language and closed captionings there for the rest of us, as it should be. It's just no one's thought about it. And that's actually even more important because what we're finding out, especially on the kids side, is when you're looking at the cases where an ASL interpreter has been used, um, they are not usually uh, uh, interpreting it verbatim. So the other thing is that people forget language is different in the deaf community. So like I would say, I'm going to the store, but if it were to be signed, it would be translated to, to the store I go. And so that's different. Um, what we're finding out, though, is that when interpreters are being used, a lot of times they're hijacking the interview and kind of just, you know, asking questions themselves. And a lot of times the Child Advocacy Center is put in like a situation where if they don't speak ASL, they just have to rely on the fact that, yes, they got an interpreter. The problem is, is at some point that will probably be a problem because under the ADA definition of accommodation, it has under Title II, it has to be reasonable and effective. And so just providing an ASL interpreter is not enough. Um, it, they also have to be able to do interpret correctly. And that's one of those, you know, really kind of um, unfortunate situations, because a lot of times you don't know if something's being interpreted correctly or if you don't. But I know that that's an ongoing issue that we're kind of working um, and looking at working on in 2024. And we'll probably be doing some work on it with uh, Modell <laughs> around. I, I'm throwing you guys out there under the bus, essentially, because I know you're always down for any of this stuff. But we, we um, are. And anytime I talk to somebody who is an interpreter, like the gold standard should be someone mm -hmm. whose first language is ASL should be the interviewer. Like it just we, makes so much sense. Right. In the same way that if someone's Spanish speaking, the best person to do the interview is someone who speaks Spanish. Right. right? Like it's it makes too much sense. It makes too much sense. Yeah. Yeah. But in any language, there's going to be loss of interpretation and interpreters, in my experience, who in an effort to be super helpful, end right. up asking clarifying questions that the interviewer wouldn't prompt them to ask. So I don't think they're trying to like screw anything up. They're trying no. to be helpful. Oh, but yeah. your point is exactly right that then the, the directness of the translation gets lost. The intention is sincere. And mm -hmm. you know, I've talked to interpreters who are like, look, it might just be helpful to have a training yes. for ASL interpreters to be certified you know, because the big thing is they don't even understand the forensic interview process or anything like that. And so, uh, you know, the the good thing is that the field is right for never ending opportunities, um, you know, for collaboration and, and things like that. What were we agreeing to for 2024? 
Um, pretty much to be my best friend forever. All right. <laughs> now you were going to your share and something that you wanted to start in 2024 and said my dad. That was, that was it. Like a training for ASL interpreters to make sure that, you know, we can say they're actually qualified to do this type of interpreting because they've been trained on it. Yeah, I, I, I think that would be awesome. And I think, yeah, I don't think it would be relatively... difficult either. Uh-uh. No, and we, we've had several um, both ASL users um, and uh, interpreters take our trainings before. And usually we ask them for feedback, like, hey, how is this going to translate? How is this going to go? Can we do this better? So we've already started to have some of those conversations. And what we typically encourage people in the field to do when they're meeting with an interpreter, like before an interview is, hey, make sure you remind them, please only ask questions that I ask, ask them as closely as you possibly can, because we know things don't translate directly, but it's not enough, right? To have that brief five minute conversation right before the interview, it's it's not gonna change practice, it's not gonna change behavior, and it's not gonna let people know all of the good reasons why we do things a certain way in a forensic interview. So they need more from us, and if we wanna get more from them is really what I think it comes down to. Yeah. You know, I know that we have a couple deaf-led organizations that do victim services that have really expressed a lot of interest in also collaborating on that type of training, uh, which, you know, kind of falls in line with making sure, you know, we have the proper representation. But there's just so many areas in this field. Um, Sometimes it just looks very, very overwhelming and it's hard to figure out sometimes a place to start. Uh, but I do think, you know, that is one area where uh, there's a lot of mistakes being made. And uh, I think that's something that a training actually could have some really positive effects on. Yeah, I, I like that. I think also uh, we could talk about the possibility maybe doing a if we get some of these groups to get some folks to participate, do a webinar, we could do like a panel and do a Q&A, right? Do a little presentation and, and then do a Q&A, record it, have it available for people. Um, request, you know, have people say, Hey, if you're getting ready to do one of these, watch this, this mm-hmm. webinar. So there's lots of different things that we could yeah. do. Um, yeah, this is, this was, this was fun. I think, uh, I don't have any more, more topics that what? I need to go into. Oh, I <laughs> could go into you don't hundreds. want of... to keep talking, Scott? <laughs> I do. I was thinking about a case I had with an individual used ASL, spoke Mandarin, Tamil, Swahili, and English. And there's not an, a, you know, an ideal interpreter in the world for that. So sometimes you do the best you can if you have nothing else, but we should continue to strive to get uh, people with lived experience, native speakers uh, in the different languages and communication styles that we have to continue to push the envelope. But uh, And I, because uh, it's really helpful too, to the work to have sure. that perspective. You know, because, you know, when you come from a lived experience or, you know, there's also like the whole element of a lot of professionals, um, you know, have disabilities. Like I run the Adult Advocacy Center and we're working with the Ohio Forensic Nursing Network, which is um, disability led, which is huge um, to have a forensic nurse to who is talking about disability and making it a safe place for the medical community. So um, that that there there are steps that are occurring. Um, and it's nice, though, when you're at least taking the steps with people that you kind of enjoy hanging out with, like Maddie and Stacey. <laughs> exactly. 
wonderful on that well, wonderful note. No, I know. Yeah, Thank Kevin, you. that kind of leads me, I guess, to my last question, because we've talked a lot about a lot of things, about a lot of ups, <laughs> a lot of downs, things that are happening in the field. So what what keeps you going? What gets you out of bed in the morning, keeps you going in this important work? Scott Modell. <laughs> no, I hear that a lot, but uh, it's usually in yeah. mocking tone. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, and that was pretty much the way I delivered it as oh, well. Yeah, I, I heard it. I heard it. <laughs> so what gets me up in the morning? I think, well, I have children and mm -hmm. so some of it is not necessarily a voluntary action. Sometimes that decision is made for me, but it is a very interesting time when we're, that we're living in. And it, I, and recently I have had quite a few disheartening moments as far as people's apathy in regards to a lot of the work that we're doing. Um, but it's, you know, what keeps me going are stories like, uh, let's even just start with Lois Curtis. I mean, she is one of our figureheads who, uh, she recently over the last couple of years passed away, but she, um, was one of the plaintiffs for the Olmstead case, which literally allowed people with disabilities to leave institutions and to be integrated into the community. Um, so what ended up happening was Lois was a actual patient in a facility. Um, she had a variety of different diagnoses, and this is all, you know, this is something she shared outwardly, but autism, paranoid schizophrenia, a bunch of others, I think. And so she was institutionalized and started this lawsuit. And, you know, for those of us that work in the field, just imagining being in a facility and trying to accomplish something like a lawsuit, you know, and with all of the potentials for retaliation and all of those things are, you know, it's very, very daunting, but she was able to continue on. And that case allowed literally the disability community freedom from the institution. Um, and very few people can say that they got their freedom from a black woman with multiple disabilities. And we did. But I think that's a big thing within our community is that you really see this strength and this power and this courage from a population that has be been beaten so far down. You know, I mean, like in some countries, you just get killed for having a disability, but people are still fighting and believing and they still have that motivation. Um, but, you know, it's it's literally looking at stories like that and and thinking you know how grateful am I I'm not in an institution you know who knows if I was born during that time perhaps I I could have been and you know but I know I've done a lot of investigations in facilities and how very difficult it can be to live there and for this woman to make that kind of you know potentially sacrifice um, that's huge so I think that's you know, kind of what gets me up sometimes in the morning when it's difficult is not to really think about me and just kind of think about the work that we're doing is so much bigger than just any of us. And I just want to stay part of the game. That's awesome. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah. This, this, Thank I, you. Hope, I hope that this was fun. This was a good one. I, I hope this was uh, useful for our listeners and I'll uh, kick it to Stacy to sign us off. All right. Well, thanks again, Catherine, for joining us. We appreciate you and your stories and your insights. And um, I think the last bit that you shared was really inspirational. So keep up the good work. We'll continue to do it together. Thank you for having me, Stacey. It was a joy. Thanks for listening. For more information about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.